Welcome to Out of the Lab, a podcast interviewing entrepreneurs who've taken research out of the lab and built it into a company that's serving the world. These entrepreneurs are heroes, and the planet needs more of them. So tune in, learn from their successes and failures, and get inspired. Visit Bountiful.org to join our community and realize your power to save the world. Hello and welcome to Out of the Lab. I'm your host, Max Finder. Today's guest is Dr. Iris Good. Iris is a scientist, entrepreneur, and investor specializing in the commercialization of medical devices. She has a hugely successful career. She did a PhD in biochemistry from the Weizmann Institute. She has two postdocs in molecular biology and brain research. And then she really started to focus on technology commercialization, especially in international markets and and really specializing in, in bringing technologies to India. She's developed a bunch of different companies. One of them has been acquired, um, and she is extremely, extremely impressive. She's also now the chair of the Imperial Innovation Seed Fund at the London Business School, uh, the London Business School, UCL, um, and she is also on the investment committee of Cambridge University Seed Fund. Um, so these are two major universities in, in the UK. And she's also the chairwoman of Good Relations India, which has taken tons and tons of technology companies um, to India. Uh, they have clients like Apple, Barclays, Bloomberg, uh, Cartier, the UN, Virgin, the list goes on and on. Um, we talk all about her career and we talk about advice she would give to entrepreneurs. She talks about what what entrepreneurs um characteristics of, of these successful university technology entrepreneurs and scientists are. Uh, she talks about what it takes to get these things out of the lab. She talks about lessons she's learned in her career, some of her failures. Uh, we talk about the Indian market a little bit. Uh, and it's just a really great conversation with such a successful person that has done a few different things that she's kind of brought together and uh and and used all for good so commercializing really really cool uh medical devices uh she's an expert so enjoy visit bountiful.work to get early access to our platform and uh thank you for listening enjoy the episode hello iris thank you for joining us today hi max it's nice to be here so you have a pretty illustrious career from academic scientist through technology commercializer and now on the investing side, but I'd love to even go back to the beginning and hear a little bit about um, when you were doing your PhD and and what you were interested in and what you were looking to do. I I know you did a couple of postdocs, but but maybe you could tell us if if you can go back and think a bit about your headspace at that time and and then we can try to figure out how how you ended up where you are today. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, Well, um, I always wanted to do a PhD in biochemistry, as weird as it sounds. Uh, And at the Weizmann Institute in Israel, it was the best place uh, then and and probably now. And um, I didn't have any idea about uh, commercialization or anything, but also biology, if you remember, it was a long time ago. Uh, The medtech didn't start until uh, until probably I finished my two postdocs, so I was quite lucky. Uh, but during my studies, 
there wasn't much work but being a technician to lab, but I just loved biology and I went with my heart. And uh, then things opened up and a new industry uh, emerged and it was really exciting. Although we didn't know anything about it and it felt like defecting the academic world. Uh, but I took the chance, I wanted to, to make things happen and to see them happening rather than having a very basic research that would last uh, dozens of years uh, with all the respect to it. And that's how I, I moved to the industry after the two postdocs I did. Um, yeah. So And so what was the first, I mean, you, you got involved in a, in, you started a medical device technology company after your postdoc? Yes, so so actually I, I went from, from uh, doing a, a master's and PhD in the same, and actually the first uh, um, um, postdoc that I did was in, in sort of the same area. And then I moved to brain research and I heard somebody saying in, in, in one of the conferences 25 years ago when I started and the whole the whole study he did was uh, whether a certain protein turns to the right or to the left, cis or trans, it's called. And I thought, you know, I want to do something much more hands-on. And so I uh, first joined a company called Angiosonics. It doesn't exist anymore. And um, I, I worked, uh, and it was a medical device company, luckily. And I loved the multidisciplinary aspect of it. So instead of just biology uh, way of thinking, I had to think about uh, computer science and, and me mechanics and, and design and physics. Uh, it was also in ultrasound. So it gave me a totally different uh, way of thinking. And then I co-established uh, UltraShape, which was a high intensity ultrasound device for FET emulsification. Uh, with two co-founders and it looked just a normal way forward, if you see it, I mean. And so this was not an academic spin out. It was something that you and your, uh, your, your partners invented yeah. and developed and then, and then built into a startup company. Right, so I, they had the idea and they had space and, and money for a year. And they uh, said, why won't you come and let's co-found everything together. And I thought, you know, we have money for one year. I learned a little bit the, 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 the area, definitely not as, as much as I would have learned, uh, studied it uh, today. But I thought, you know, one year, uh, I will make it. <laughs> I was optimistic and I thought, yes, we will make it. And I probably I didn't know how difficult it is, but uh, we did make it. And I think it's not, I mean, so many startups start with this huge doubt, uh, but uh, it's perseverance that you need most of all. You need a good idea, you need something that the market needs, and, and there is a long list or, or, or rather a focused list of, of requirements that you really need to, to have in order to to have a good starting point. But besides that, you need to be able to dust yourself each time and keep on and keep on and look for other reasons. Listen to what the market says, what others tell you, uh, judge it and, and, and change a little bit or, 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 or just persevere. 
we'll get, uh, I have a bunch of questions actually about, especially about your, your, um, the trajectory of your career, but this focus list of requirements piqued my interest. I mean, what are some yeah. of those other things that you think are so critical um, to deciding whether a technology, uh, especially a nascent technology that you yeah. might find in a university lab are critical to a startup, you know, or, or, or are the, yeah. the, the make or no, or the, the go or no go kind of yeah. things on the startup list? Yeah, so I, I will not say it in a, in a very orderly uh, manner because I, I will tell you the list. Um, first of all, probably the most important thing is does the market need it? The fact that you like it doesn't mean that others would like it. So who's going to pay for it and why? Uh, I, I read a, a nice phrase that I, I use, it's, you, you create the technology for your clients rather than you create a technology and then look for clients, yeah? So you have to think, who is it, what is the gap that my technology will be so important to, to, to fill? So that's number one. Then- Just on that, I, I, I really like this, the, the way to say of self first and build second, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I'm and, sorry. And for going. this, you have yes, uh, uh, Max. No, no, absolutely right. And for this, you've got to really understand the market. So if it is something that, you know, I I, I keep telling people, go around when you walk, think about the world and think constantly how you can make it better. So it's in in everything. You know, you see a queue in wherever it is. You think, oh, I could have created. A, a, a software to to work on the queues. You see uh, pricing that is not changing properly, so you can. So these are, it's it's a good thinking practice or training. Uh, but when you have this idea, and you think, gosh, this is exactly what the world needs, then you have to start asking around. Am I right? Is it really the next big thing? So you have to ask the right people, and this is called market research, right? You have to ask. Am I correct in thinking that this is the next big thing? This is really required. And for this, you have to understand who your market is, who you're going to sell it to. Do I know people through LinkedIn or through personal connections? Do I know these people that could give me 10 minutes of their time just to talk about it and to see whether I'm at all in the right place? Once you think that you are, uh, you also want to see that the market size is big enough because you will have a small chunk, definitely at the beginning. So if the market size is, is a niche one, you have to think how you will become profitable. And maybe you want to be a charity, but even a charity needs to be profitable and then burn the money and then, keep, you know, you have to have some, some uh, income even for a charity it just uh, zeros at the end of the year. But so you need to understand that you have a market, uh, a, a, a sizable market to start with. So when I judge technologies, I always look at what market size they have. Uh, it's called the, the uh, total market, uh, market time and then the specific market, the sum, uh, of which they, they think they could be, uh, you know, they could sell to, they could become a, um, a player. Then you, you need to ask yourself, 
is my technology uh, strong enough? How long does it take me to create it? If it's three months, for example, in software or others, why would people pay for this? I mean, three months, I, I had a technology, somebody that came, a nice one in software, and it took them three months. And three months, everybody can make, you know, and definitely the big one, the big companies that may think to acquire them. So you need to see that you have some substance there, something IP, preferably, or, or know-how that is your unique uh, um, advantage. So if you have the market size and you have the technology, and of course you have internal knowledge as a, as a team, uh, you have to ask yourself then, um, what is my way forward? What do I do from now onward? What sort of money do I need? How do I raise money? How do I package it into a product? And I can go on and on uh, with, you know, many other things that you need. And I will probably remember other things that I didn't mention now, but generally speaking, these are the good starting points. No, and that's a good list. And so are, are these things that you learned on the way, like, can you talk about some of maybe even some of the failures that you experienced in commercializing sure. technology and, and, and some of the lessons that you learned that, that have helped you arrive at, at, at some of these insights today? Yes, of course, lots of failures. And somebody wiser than me once said, as long as I make more right decisions and wrong decisions, I'm, I'm pretty okay. So that's the way I look at it. You know, you have to, we all have more failures than successes. Otherwise success wouldn't be so, so unique. But uh, I remember uh, trying to fundraise uh, for a company called Touchlight Genetics uh, it's uh, a company still existing, doing fantastically well, but I'm talking about 15 years ago. Uh, we created a DNA amplification cassette, like a system. And in the days that uh, nobody spoke about DNA vaccines or M messenger RNA vaccines like we have now for COVID. And it was, it was generations too early to the world. And it was so difficult to, to get the first funding. We raised five million pounds. Uh, it's a UK company. And I remember that we were struggling uh, to explain it in a way that anybody would understand. And we, we, we made, I think the first two months of our fundraise was, was a total failure because people simply didn't get what we were trying to tell them. So we paused and we, we tried to, to work out our speech, you know, our, uh, uh, our presentation to people that knew nothing in biology, because a lot of those uh, investors are very clever in one area, but not necessarily in biology. And that's where I learned that you have to become a good storyteller. You know, don't think that what you understand, everybody understands. Cut it to, to chewable size uh, uh, pieces and, and provide your, your uh, potential investor with understanding. If he doesn't understand, he will not put his hand into the pocket and write a check. Um, so that's 
one thing I learned. So this idea of being able to concisely tell a story is is extremely useful, especially for scientists, I guess, who, who in, in a lot of cases like to get into the details and are very excited about yeah. uh, the, the complex nature of their scientific inventions and discoveries, but being able to really uh, narrow that down and concisely tell a story is is definitely a skill that that they should learn. Um, it's, it's yeah, it's crucial, I think. Yeah. And, so, and so, in your capacity, I mean, you're you're on the chair of the Cambridge uh, the Cambridge I don't forget, Cambridge yes. in, Investment Committee and the chair of the uh, Imperial I'm, Innovation Seed Fund. Um, I mean, you see a lot of these scientific. Yes. Uh, startups and stuff. W- what are some of the uh, good storytelling is one, I guess. I mean, what are some of the other unifying characteristics that some of these startups that come in front of you have? Yes, uh, just that to, to correct that, that I, I chair the Imperial College uh, Seed Fund and I am a member of the member of the investment seed fund. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, well, we see we see uh, dozens of companies and, and probably I, I, I read hundreds of, of uh, business plans every year and um, I think that you judge the technology, you judge what competes with this technology, you judge the team at this time of, of investment when it is early stage, the team is crucial. You, you look at these people, young, very you know brilliant people, and you ask yourself, could they climb a wall together? Because they will get, sooner or later, they will get to a, a, a wall. And things will not work as they think. And you ask yourself, can they, are they re- resilient? Do they listen? Can they have, do they have the, the technology capacity? Uh, can the CEO lead? It's not enough to manage. You need to lead. Can he really lead people behind him? Uh, both in, internally and externally, like investors and, and collaborations. Uh, these are important things and you get the vibe. Uh, you ask a question, is he defensive or is he listening and, and comfortable to, to say, well, you know, um, that's a very good point. We, we, we should factor it in. It's okay not to know everything at this stage. I also look at, at these uh, entrepreneurs and I ask myself, do they dream big? Uh, that's one side. I like big dreamers. On the other side, I ask myself, do they have feet on the ground? Um, are they naive in their projections and too optimistic? Or did they factor in plan B or plan C sometimes if things don't happen? So you need a range. It sounds like impossible but it is possible it just you know it's a fine line between promising too much and 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 uh, and, and dreaming too little and so um, some of these entrepreneurs inside I mean w- w- what is the ideal is there an ideal combination of these types of people like for a lot of the so if we take a step back I mean these seed funds at the universities in in the UK are some of the most successful in the world right I mean mm-hmm. you know w- w- I wonder if you could tell us a bit why you think that is um, 
Yeah. And I'd love to hear more about, you know, some of these ideal combinations of scientists and entrepreneur, you know, is the inventor often the leader of the company? Is the grad student involved? I mean, what are some of your, um, the things that you've seen that work the best maybe? Yeah. So I think uh, these are very successful because of several things. I think both, I can speak for both um, Imperial and Cambridge, they are very knowledgeable, but also friendly TTOs, technology transfer officers. We are on the same side in our teams, on the same side of the companies. Once we, we shortlist them and we work a lot uh, on the pipeline, looking at the pipeline and looking at anything that could, could work. Uh, and, and then we, we put a lot of effort in, in preparing them to be what we call investment ready. Uh, both the, the executive team on the ground and the investment committees. We spent quite a lot of time with the, the, the entrepreneurs and uh, we talk with them. All of them are very clever. They would know the technology very well, but not all of them are commercial enough. So we we help them become more commercial uh, by asking questions. We have what we call pre-investment committee meetings uh, when they're partially ready. The executive teams sometimes work with them for one or one and a half years, uh, just preparing them, going, helping them with IP, helping them understanding the, the market. Of course, they don't do the work for them, but they act as, uh, as mentors. And I think mentorship is really important for uh, entrepreneurs. Not all the entrepreneurs are very young. You know, you mentioned that uh, some of them could be professors that uh, have developed uh, the technology for seven, 10 years. And um, they just don't either don't bother that much or don't know how to commercial it. Uh, they have their own job and they don't have the drive of commercialization. So many times you're right that a postdoc or a PhD student would help them uh, with the process because uh, he or she would be uh, enthusiastic to do so. And so that's where we come and we help them shape it. We help them understand it. We help them look into the business plan in a, in a better way. And when they become investment ready, uh, we, we gather the investment committee and we believe that, and the industry shows it, that if we did our due diligence and we said yes, then uh, they're happy to co-invest with us. And, and investment ready, I mean, it, it, that's some of, you know, checking those boxes, I guess, about, you know, TAM and, you know, the market size, I guess, and the uh, the, the potential strategy? I mean, are there other things that are that are requirements in order to get something to investment ready? I guess I'm very interested, Iris, in the, the trajectory from university invention by in some professor's lab all the way up to investment ready for Imperial Seed Fund to take this thing to the next level. Yeah. So I will tell you one thing that I see over and over again with a lot of the teams is that they don't ask for enough money. Uh, it sounds like a funny problem to have, but it's something that repeats itself. Uh, 
obviously they are optimistic, otherwise they wouldn't be entrepreneurs. Uh, and also naive because they haven't done it before. They think that things will work out and they, they look at what is the minimum money I need to get to the next stage, which makes sense in many ways. But I always say, you know, and it's nearly repeating itself that I would ask, why don't you uh, raise more? Or if you raise more, and this would be maybe a good, uh, um, a, a good take home message. If you raised more, would your time to market be shorter? If the answer is yes, rethink, because time to market is one aspect that doesn't get into business plans. It doesn't have a number, but it's, an, an, it's such a crucial uh, aspect of development. And you don't want to get to your next stage without uh, enough uh, uh, fuel. So you have to work backwards. Let's say that you want 2 million pounds or, or let's say 500,000, just to, to, to be in, in, in better you know, numbers that people would uh, feel more comfortable with. Uh, but this will, this, the milestone, it will only get you to the milestone which you need for the next investment, which happens so many times. But then you will need another three to six months to raise the next investment. So your milestone, needs to be really six months before the money ends. Although it sounds so trivial, many people don't think this way. And that's something that you help these um, entrepreneurs and scientists do is, is, is part of the mentorship that you, you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, many times we would send them back saying, you know, think about it, come back to us in two weeks, in a month. And, and revise it because you will need more money. You will fall here and here. This, these places are very high risk. Your technology is not ready yet. What happens if so-and-so? Your manufacturing may not be uh, as straightforward. Uh, definitely now with COVID, COVID uh, 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 changes the timelines of cl clinical trials because not much is happening outside of COVID in, in hospitals. So all sorts of aspects that may, uh, may affect the, the burn rate and the time to, to get to the results. And so if we take a step back, I'm curious now, now I'm back to the, to the list of questions that I had. <laughs> um, yeah. If yeah. we think about, I mean, do you feel, I know you interact with PhDs and postdocs and stuff. I mean, do you think that things have changed in the, in academia and in, 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 in and you can take this however you like, but since you were a PhD and postdoc, have things changed in academia? I think that academics, uh, except that um, commercialization could be, could be a good thing. Uh, and in some, in some universities, it's even a prestigious thing. When I was a PhD student, it was void around and it was looked down at. Uh, so this is a good thing. Connecting uh, the, the academia and industry is really crucial for the development of the world. Uh, so I think this is a good thing that happens. And I know that uh, at Imperial, we work quite uh, extensively 
to talk to academics and to explain and to to show them that it's it's a good way forward. Uh, I also think that more PhD and, and, and postdoc students know a thing or two about commercialization. And I think that universities should teach them. You know, there is no reason why we shouldn't have a basic course in uh, entrepreneurship and economics in every level, in entry level, at entry level, at business school, at a master's, PhD, and postdoc. And that's something that I'm working towards uh, at Imperial. I think that's that's going to, you know, it's something to for, for the students to keep in mind as they go along uh, the various um, stages. And and so that that's great. Uh, and I hope that more people, more, you know, and you think it's happening. PhDs are getting more interested in commercialization. It, you know, inventing something and patenting something is a badge of is becoming more prestigious than than yeah. simply publishing. So that's very good for the sector. Yes, I, I agree. I I think it is good for both because it's not instead of science. Science will always be the basic of of everything, but uh, if science ends up in science it's 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 fantastic by itself but it could be more it could contribute more to the world and then back to the professor so it should be looked at as, as a positive thing and at, a, at some point in your career you were working in shlomo ben chaim's shlomo lab ben Chaim, yeah and, and well he yeah it's not a lab but he had a he is a, a serial entrepreneur and he had sort of an accelerator, a private accelerator, you could call it. And, and what do you think makes him such a sec successful serial entrepreneur, commercializer of technology? Well, he had to... Or, or uh, what was it yeah. like working in his lab as well? I mean, maybe you can <laughs> speak about that. Not yes. his lab, his accelerator. Yes, yes. Um, he, he was very successful in selling two major technologies to Johnson & Johnson at the beginning of his career. He was a cardiologist and he became very rich, a billionaire, uh, nearly overnight and uh, well, within a short period of time. And uh, luckily to, to the Israeli ecosystem, he set up uh, this, um, I think it was 11 companies uh, all different technologies. I was involved with one of them, and then I helped him with a few others. Uh, it was it was fantastic because he had a very uh, open view of 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 how things should be, and if you came with the right ideas, um, you could you know the sky was the limit. So I, I I took one of his companies. It's called it was called MetaCure to India. We developed a device for uh, uh, the treatment of diabetes and obesity. And it was very successful. Um, eventually, uh, a, few, a few moves were not uh, the right moves. And unfortunately, it didn't commercialize fully. But that's the story of, of so many startups. You know, zigzagging or, or making the wrong move could be, could be fatal, really. Okay, and and what what would you say you learned from him, just or working in that 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 experience? Uh, 
I well, I learned or, or taking the technology that, to that India. That really, yeah. the sky's the limit, and that uh, that you can to think big. Uh, you can. Uh, that the sky's the limit. You can, you have to think big, and you have to to, um, you know, not stop where uh, where others do. Uh, I'll give you an example. I had this uh, medical device that was quite a complicated one. It was minimally invasive battery that was sutured to the stomach in uh, three places two in the fundus and one in the antrum, if people know the stomach. And uh, we controlled uh, diabetes through that and also obesity. And I tried to, uh, I finished uh, preclinical trials and I tried to have two inhuman, first two inhuman. And this was something that was so needed and I did believe that this could change the world. And I couldn't do it anywhere in Europe or in the States. Uh, obviously, we didn't want to do anything illegal, but I wanted a place where the bar was a little lower. And then I found that uh, in India, there were then uh, over 50 million diabetics. Uh, and I thought, you know, I need two out of 50 million. If I, if I don't get that, I should retire. And luckily, I went to India and I did find uh, a doctor, a professor that uh, for, diabet for diabetes that uh, was happy to try it uh, on two of his patients. And we went through the uh, Helsinki um, committee and uh, we got the first, in, first two in human. And uh, then I saw how fantastic uh, fant the scope of India is. And I thought, you know, we can't just come and go. We should, uh, we should do something here because India was the gateway to Asia, which was half of the population of diabetics in the world. So you cannot ignore that. So before I knew it, I set up seven clinical centers there, and we uh, developed. You know, we uh, we opened commercial operations there, and um, so this is something that you can do when you have. An open person as the chairman that uh, has the means and and uh, encourages you to to develop your your idea or, or or the device. It was great fun. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing experience. And so, th this actually is a wonderful segue into the next topic I want to ask. I mean, so you you have a lot of exposure to India. You're the chairperson of M of. Um, Good relations, India. good relation India because the name changed. I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, wh what what do you think about science in India? Is it different? I mean, I feel like there mm -hmm. are so many PhDs coming out of India right now. Um, maybe you could speak a little bit about science commercialization and, 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 and academia in yeah. India. Um, yeah, yeah. So India was when I when I came first to India, it was year 2000. It was just about when India really opened to the world. It was amazing. I remember working in Chennai in the first year. I, I spent, for three years, I spent every other week in India. So I, I, I was exposed quite a lot to, to the Indian culture and to, to India as a whole. And I remember when I traveled from Chennai to Bombay, 
I flew in the morning flight sometimes, I was the only woman and the only foreigner on the airplane. Can you believe it? Uh, these were like 20 years ago. So India was, was just discovered big time by the world. And now, of course, you won't be, you won't believe this, you know, it, it, it just looks, it, Bombay is, is so, so Western uh, and you will have so many foreigners there. Uh, but these days it was, it was much, much less. Um, and I, I think the socioeconomic status uh, was, was less and people didn't dare uh, um, risk their, their bread and butter. Uh, Indians are very entrepreneurial, so you can see it in every junction, you know, everybody from, from whichever caste, they will have an idea whether they will sell you something small or something bigger in, in their view, they will go and try. So when the money started coming in, and uh, nowadays you have about 400 millions that are the affluent middle class in India, and you can see it because now in the, the last five to 10 years, you see more and more entrepreneurship, uh, scientific one, and you will see it in, in, in many other uh, uh, areas. You will see it also in infrastructure, you will see it in restaurants, people think out of the box and they will go and do something. There is the money, the parents give the money to their children, they become a part of it, but there are also lots of uh, uh, um, technology uh, and, and scientific entrepreneurship that becomes uh, commercialized. They have, um, they have uh, accelerators and they have some sponsorship from the government, but a lot of private investment as well. And so you think uh, we are bullish on India and the future of, of scientific breakthroughs coming out of uh, out of India? Yeah, I think that especially the one, you know, fintech is very strong in India. And uh, there was uh, a few years ago, there was a demonetization uh, uh, process where <laughs> in, in, in one minute, uh, people couldn't uh, get cash because they changed the, the, the notes and um, fintech became very strong. So from a population that was dominating uh, by cash, they became much more uh, open to, to digital payment, for example. So changes uh, are, are made there uh, and sometimes they, they jump generation. Like they, they, many of the Indians didn't have landline, but they have mobile phones. So they never had a landline. Uh, so these are the things that you would see, the, the things that are so different from the West uh, that, that people will jump. But the, the affluent middle class is bigger than the whole of the United States. They have a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of buying power, and a lot of hunger. The youngsters are very proud Indians. And um, they do fantastic things there. Do you think there are technology licensing opportunities in India? Or, or, or I mean, can you speak a little bit about tech transfer in, in India? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. Well, I know a lot of private uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, so people will just come with an idea and will do it. 
uh, I assume uh, there is also tech transfer. There, they have something called BIRAC, uh, the Biotechnology Institute uh, uh, Association, maybe. Uh, it's called BIRAC, it's in Delhi, and they invest a certain amount of uh, uh, money in, in very early stage. Uh, we work with them also with Ignite, with Judge Business School in Cambridge, and they come to get trained uh, and uh, they have conferences, etc. I suppose that this is more, it's more a private market rather than a technology transfer uh, market. That's, that would be my guess. And in your experience now um, on the investment committees of these two, you know, very successful funds in, in England, um, focusing on tech transfer investments, I mean, what, what do you think is happening in tech transfer? I know you mentioned that you're starting to advocate for teaching um, people at all levels, courses in entrepreneurship and economics. I mean, are there other initiatives that you are leading or, or think that you guys will uh, engage in soon that will... Um, change tech transfer? I mean, where do you think tech TTOs and tech transfer is heading in the next five or 10 years? Yes, um, it's a good question. Uh, I, I think that when you, when you look at uh, the ideas, the pipeline will probably be dominant. Uh, the universities will dominate it for a very long time because we're talking about mature pipeline that uh, has been developed there over many, many years. The money is in the industry, talk about VCs. And if I see the VCs on one side and the universities on the other side, there is a gap, a bridge that needs to be created between these two. And there is a lot of, of uh, cultural differences between them. Uh, for example, VCs would look uh, into the faster, uh, uh, the technologies that could be commercialized faster. So software and, and, and light, uh, lighter technologies would appeal more to VCs, while the heavy ones uh, could be left behind, like uh, you know, any pharma, medical devices. And there is a gap there that needs to be uh, treated. Uh, there, are, there are a few things that happen. Uh, there are VCs that are getting in touch. There are industry uh, forums that, that, that are being created because the university needs the industry and the need, industry needs uh, the university. So uh, uh, big pharma companies would want to see the next big thing and maybe even invest even for a first refusal. Uh, at universities. So these are things that happen. Uh, uh, deep tech uh, institutes uh, uh, are being built or set up, founded uh, with uh, um, government and other money involved. Um, so this gap needs to be uh, bridged somehow. And how can, what can the TTOs do to do their part in that? PTOs need to be friendly enough and knowledgeable enough and supportive enough to buy into the faculty, that the faculty will buy into them so that they can 
the TTOs are in charge of the pipeline. They know the pipeline. They need to create the pipeline. Without the TTO, the pipeline is just lots of ideas that are not put into a pipeline, if you see what I mean. And once we put them together, we can also say, yes, this is good, but it will probably come in our next fund or next, next fund. So let's work on it, yeah? So if we have, for example, if we had a proof of concept fund, which would be before our fund, we could create this pipeline and, and, and eventually we will, you know, we'll have just a very long train of filled with uh, ideas that can come to maturity in different times and can be directed uh, uh, successfully to investment and, and further development. Yeah, that's something that David Allen from Tech Launch Arizona was speaking about on the most recent episode of our podcast was the, the, the critical nature of proof of concept funding and how it's an initiative that can really improve a tech transfer's ability to get stuff out of the lab. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, we are, we're currently working exactly uh, on that. And uh, we have a proof of concept fund within our fund in Cambridge, and it works fantastically. The team identifies up to six without even our involvement, and, uh, and they, they work with them for maybe a year, sometimes a year and a half, as I mentioned before. And that's, that's so important for these companies to, to do it without the pressure of, of real investment. It's a convertible loan, and it can take them uh, a, a, a good way forward before we see them and we start, uh, uh, you know, asking all the relevant questions. They are being asked these questions uh, uh, before and they can prepare for them and mature with, with the development of the product. And so if you had to give advice to some of these, you know, young entrepreneurial scientists and grad students, and um, what what would you say to them? Whether from your own experience or you know from wh whichever you know tranche yeah. of your experience you want to draw on. I mean, you've done yeah. so much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would say you know, read, be aware of 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 your world. I remember being a PhD student and master's student, I was quite living in a bubble. You know, I loved my, my research. I read so many research articles, but I knew, I don't want to say nothing, but close to nothing about the world. You know, I, I wasn't connecting my world to the real world. I was, I was in a bubble. Don't be in a bubble. Read the, the, the business sections of the papers read uh, surveys, look where industry goes, think in an applied man manner, think about what you can do with your, your uh, knowledge, your scientific knowledge. Can it help further besides writing an article, which is fantastic. I mean, in, in the bigger, in the, in the advanced, in, you know, in the prestigious papers, this is great, but sometimes you write the article, you lost the the IP, because it's prior art. So if you think in a commercial way, you would have a much bigger picture of what you can do with with uh, uh, with your 
idea. And some of the ideas can change the world. You would want to be one of them, one of these people changing the world, wouldn't you? I think so. And if you had to give yourself advice on, again, any period of your career, I mean, just something looking back and, and you know, what you would say to yourself, the young Dr. Iris Good. Um, probably, I would say, be more confident. Yes, yes, we can, you know. Uh, um, I think my generation as a woman was different from the young women today. Uh, I was always very bullish and, 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 and persistent, but I didn't think that I could do what I, I, I came to do. And um, yeah, the sky's the limit, as we said. And um, did you just, did you experience a lot of sexism in your academic pursuits or or business pursuits? I think again, without you know getting into details, I think that it's it was a much more uh, male dominant world, and less women were there, and less women thought that they could. And I was a mother, and I I remember even going to India. As I said, I spent every other week. And when I spoke to people, they said, oh, you have two daughters. Oh, poor them, you know, in, in a normal discussion, in a normal business discussion. And that, that it's difficult. It's difficult being a mother and doing other things that you think are right. And, and, and the society as, uh, as a whole doesn't help you. Uh, but you have to be just uh, driven and believe in what you're doing and get it right. So I think it is easier for, for women now. Uh, women can do, everybody can do without, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a woman or a man, you just can do it. Just think big, look into what you need to, you know, what are the things that you personally need in order to create this environment that can allow you to do it and just go for it. Iris, I think that's a wonderful place to stop. Um, can it, Where can people find you if they want to reach out? I mean, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, LinkedIn or? LinkedIn is good. LinkedIn good, yeah? Yeah, 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 we can link to it. Um, we'll link to all of your, you know, all of the various uh, initiatives you're involved in. Um, think big. I mean, any other final words before we close out? Well, I wanted to thank you, Max. You're doing a fantastic job uh, encouraging young entrepreneurs. I think this is a, a brilliant uh, thing to do. I wish you every success and your entrepreneurs and good luck. Thank you very much. We <laughs> really appreciate you. it. Iris, thank you so much for joining. Um, we'll include links in the show notes. Uh, that's the Out of the Lab, Out of the Lab podcast from Bountiful.Work. Sign up uh, to get early access to our platform. And, and thanks, everyone, for joining. Thanks again, Iris. Thank you. Bye-bye, Max. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. But now we need your help. We're building a community of scientists, students, entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors to commercialize meaningful technology and research. Join us at Bountiful.Work today to find opportunities and realize your power to save the world.